Welcome back, everyone, to the Eggview Pitch. This is Shay Folk, and today I have on special guest Adam Striegel at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Uh, can you introduce yourself, Adam? Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. So my name is Adam Striegel. Um, I'm a graduate student at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I study weed science, uh, primarily in corn and soybeans, and I was uh, given the opportunity to join Shay to discuss some of the uh, weed control issues many producers are having with the spring that we've had this year. And I'll preface this by saying that Adam is one of the, the smartest and most dedicated people to uh, weeds outside of the uh, marijuana type of anybody else that I know. So uh, definitely talking to the right person here today. Adam, can you can you tell me a little bit about the research that you're doing on your end? Yeah, first and foremost, Shay, now I'm blushing. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, so, um, in my graduate research, I work primarily with two main projects. We have several different industry side projects that uh, my advisor makes me do as well. Um, but the two projects that I work primarily on, uh, the first being volunteer corn control in the enlist corn systems, and the second being comparing different pre followed by post herbicide programs in soybeans across the state of Nebraska. Uh, did you want specifics as well? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about, you know, if you could talk for two minutes here about what those actually look like. Yeah, most definitely. So um, for the Enlist Corn Project um, in Nebraska with the with having a lot of center pivot irrigation and highly productive land, a lot of producers do corn on corn crop rotations or corn, 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 followed by a year of soybeans uh, in these cropping systems. We've noticed an increase uh, in, in specific years of volunteer corn in their corn fields. Uh, in 2017, we had a really bad windstorm that dropped a lot of ears right before harvest. And that following year, the volunteer corn in these corn fields was incredibly bad, uh, to, to the point which they were reaching out to my advisor about, you know, what are the yield loss potential of these volunteer corn plants in my cornfield, or how can I control them in my cornfield? And up until that point, there hadn't been a lot of research done on the yield impacts of volunteer corn in a cornfield, or how to control it in a cornfield. Um, you know, if you think back, you used to be able to rotate between Roundup Ready and Liberty Link corn, so that was a good way that we used to be able to control uh, volunteer corn. But with the prevalence of these smart stacks that stack these two traits together, that uh, management program has kind of gone by the wayside. Uh, so within list, it's resistant to all the FOP herbicides in the ACCA's group. So you're, you're, you know, you're looking at Assure 2, uh, Fusillade, or Fusion. These are products that you could spray in enlist corn and control volunteer corn from the year prior. Um, it's, it's a new management tool. And uh, did you want me to just jump right back into the soybean project? Yeah, no, that, that and that's interesting. So one quick note that I'll make there on that, and you and I were talking a bit about this offline there, but when, as we move forward, so, you know, Enlist, obviously, a exciting lineup there. As we move forward, if there are fields that are corn on corn and you have the volunteer from Enlist, what does that look like? How do you control that down the road? That would be incredibly difficult to control in a corn and corn crop rotation. If you're not willing to utilize uh, a crop rotation and, and plant soybeans, for example, uh, the the products that you could use to control the the volunteer enlist corn in a 
in a, a cornfield is next to nothing. If you were using uh, soybeans as a, a rotation crop, then you could just use uh, any of the other ACCase herbicides uh, like clethodim, uh, which would be select, or post, which is cethoxidim. Uh, but in a corn-on-corn -corn crop rotation, it would become incredibly difficult to control volunteer enlist, which is why uh, you know variety placement in your rotation is probably essential. Right. Obviously, some uh, long-term decision-making to be made there. Now, let, let's talk a little bit about the uh, soybean side of things then. Yeah, most definitely. So, you know, I think no one is more aware of the options that you have in um, – herbicide-resistant crops than, than producers and farmers. Um, with the, the extend trait being widely adopted um, and, and, and list soybeans coming out soon, there will be more options for your you know, herbicide-resistant soybeans than we've had ever. Um, and so this project looks at you know, the ability to control weeds and conventional herbicide programs, Roundup her programs, um, your extend programs and your Liberty programs. And that is a pre followed by a post program. So not only are we looking at these different post programs that go associated with different uh, herbicide traits, you're also looking at different pre programs, trying to really look at what is one of the better, um, you know, herbicide programs that you can use based off of your state in, or excuse me, your location in the state, uh, you know, so that way you can get the best bang for your buck in terms of weed control. Sounds like you're looking at a lot of variables there. Yeah, it's it's made the analysis kind of uh, interesting. Uh, but the one thing I've really enjoyed about this project is that we have a, it's a multi-site location. Uh, so I've gotten to travel across the great state of Nebraska uh, and look at you know different production practices as we move across the state. Um, and, you know, when you move from a dryland farm to a irrigated farm to all the way out west in Scotts Bluff, you do see a lot of differences uh, in some of the management practices that producers use. And that's a good follow up question that I had for you. You are looking at variables between dryland, irrigated and otherwise. Yes. Uh, so oh. that, that is a that is one of the layers associated with this project. So we have both dryland, irrigated um, and, and those are primarily the, the, the two differences that we have. But then we also have differences in tillage operations, whether it's a conventionally tilled field or a no-till field. Okay, great. Now, thank you for sharing that side of things. And it, it's a good segue into one of the primary questions why I'm talking with you today. Mm -hmm. And that's current weed pressure and late season control. So producers have finally gotten a breath of air, hopefully. Uh, planting's done side dress operations or late season nitrogen if they have the capability for that or if that's part of their program now they're looking at weed control weed pressure and there are a lot of producers out there that are going oh man yep. um, lots of issues right now so i want to look at it from the standpoint of not only those that were prevent plant acres but the wet spots that you have remaining in the field and just traditionally heavy areas of weed pressure so talk to me a little bit about how this year was different as far as uh, timing for weed emergence and then some of the decisions that producers had to make with that. Yeah, most definitely. Um, 
So what we saw in some of the research plots that we work with um, is two, two actual things. Uh, in, in one area where it got a little less rain than some of the other locations, the weeds emerged just kind of normally. Uh, you know, your standard timing of, of, of the different weed species, whether it be your amaranth species, uh, you know, your, your horse weed. Um, and then in some areas where we had very heavy rainfall, the weeds were also, um, they, they were delayed in emergence. Uh, for example, uh, that soybean project that I was talking about earlier, one of my locations, it, we're probably 40 days after we applied the pre and we haven't seen a break or uh, weed germination in the plots that received pre-herbicides, uh, which was really surprising to see. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. That's the product doing what it's supposed to be doing. Yep. Uh, and with, depending on the product that you apply as well, the amount of rain that you received, and if you got your herbicides on prior to uh, a lot of the rain events that we had, you could have saw increased efficacy, but you could have also seen a breakdown of products if it moved it through the soil profile. Interesting. So the areas that were not able to get that in in time, and, and maybe you haven't seen a whole lot of that, but I know so Northwest Illinois, uh, Northeast Iowa, and really kind of on the eastern side of the, uh, the Corn Belt, even into Indiana here, there's a lot of producers that were not fortunate to, to get anything on before that. So they're seeing this really heavy weed pressure. Now, have you seen any differences? Uh, you mentioned there are some farms with different cultivation practices as well as product management. Mm -hmm. How has how cultivation or uh, tillage passes played a role in that? So that's actually a great segue. Um, so for the project that I was discussing, uh, the location I was talking about that we had excellent weed control, that is a conventionally tilled field. Uh, another one of the locations that I have is a no-till field, and they start off a little uh, dirty. And, you know, that's not something we weed, sci we weed scientists like. You know, our, one of the things that we stress to producers is, you know, we start clean and you stay clean. That's the ideal scenario. But in, you know, this spring, this year, that's been very challenging for a lot of producers. Um, th that, that specific field location, where we started a little dirty, it got even more dirty uh, with the delay of planting uh, and the, some of these herbicide program applications. Um, so I think I'm seeing kind of similar results to what we were seeing, what you're seeing, I guess, in the Eastern Corn Belt. Right. With, um, with that being said, so we've talked about where we've been, we know where we are right now, uh, where are we going? So I guess to, I guess to implement more on where, where we are right now, what can producers be doing right now in order to turn some of these issues around? Yeah, most definitely. Um, so if we're, if we're working with a primarily heavy weed infestation and large weed size, you know, that's, it's important to look at not only species composition, but also species height. Uh, some of these products are a little bit more flexible in terms of what we can apply for weed height versus others. You know, it, it makes sense, Shay, um, if we were to apply a contact herbicide, you know, the only part of the plant it's going to kill is where it comes in contact with the specific leaves um, or other plant parts. So with larger weed size, a lot of these contact herbicides that we would we could primarily use in a in a normal year may not be the best fit for our certain situation uh, to the point where I'd be looking at more of our systemic herbicides uh, you know which there's probably no more popular systemic herbicide than glyphosate 
followed closely by 2,4-D and dicamba. So when we're looking at these larger weed sizes, you you have to you, you know come up to bat with the right with the right herbicide, I guess. Oh, that makes sense. Now, how about on the smaller end of that? So with the smaller end, if if your field has smaller weeds, you know a lot of these contact herbicides will still work great. Uh, and depending on if you got a crop in or if you didn't, this is an opportunity. You know, I I think we talked about we would discuss this in the in the in the prevent plant section, but you know, this is an opportunity to maybe utilize a herbicide that you haven't used before. Like if you've not traditionally used Liberty on your farm and you weren't able to get some acres in and you're looking at a prevent plant situation, this is an awesome opportunity to utilize a chemistry you don't typically use and give the weeds a little bit of a, of a diverse experience with our herbicides to hopefully prevent the development of any resistance on your farm. Um, and, and that's some of the whole premise behind proper weed control, right? Yes. I mean, uh, let's look at, let's not look at one uh, knockout punch here. We need three to four modes of action. And that's what you're alluding to here. Uh, we need to look at areas that if we've moved to no-till or strip-till systems, if this is a year where you're having significant pressure, you didn't get the crop planted, or you have large areas that didn't make it after one or two replants, you may need to be considering some other options. Mm -hmm. and, and there's an interesting point that I talked to my advisor, Amit Jala, um, at UNL about, because um, you know one of the locations that we were spraying had exactly what we're discussing about some of these, some, in some of these farmers' fields. They have large weeds that weren't controlled or taken care of by a tillage operation or a burn down, and uh, we needed to apply some of these products. And I discussed with him, you know, is there any has there been any studies that have shown that a, a field that has, you know, high weed populations that are already present in the field, is that going to prevent some of these molecules from getting down into the soil to provide, you know, a residual control to any of the seeds that have yet to germinate? And he was telling me, you know, based off of what he's seen and what he's read, that there hasn't been a study that has identified that a, you know, ground cover will prevent some of these soil applied herbicides from working. Um, that surprised me a little bit, uh, but if, if it gets down to the soil like it should, we shouldn't see a reduced efficacy just because you have uh, weeds in your in your field. And that kind of makes sense when you think about what a lot of producers will do in the spring, where they throw a burned down herbicide in with their pre's. Right. That's a that's a really interesting point. Um, talk to me a little bit about the importance of residuals. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, Shay, if you have a really bad water hemp population in a field and you need to control it and you kill it, is that is that gone or will it come back kind of like um, what there's a Greek there's a animal in Greek mythology. I believe it's the Hydra. You cut one head off and two come out of it. <laughs> right. So you can control a stand of, of plants with, you know, either a contact or a systemic herbicide. But if you don't apply some sort of residual product, and um, there are seeds waiting in, in the soil, the, in the seed bank, that are able to germinate, then you're just going to have to come back with a second pass almost. Um, but if you apply some of these uh, contact or systemic herbicides in conjunction with a residual product uh, at the same time, even though this is, you know, at this point, post-emergence, you will see uh, a longer period of weed control because your residual soil herbicide will be putting in the work for, you know, 14, 28, maybe even 40 days, depending on where you're at and what your field's like. You threw me a really good pitch there. 
And that leads into another question that I had for you. Producers that are renting new ground uh, have recently purchased from other ones that have traditionally had poor weed control. I'll, I'll ask this two ways. So the first way is timeliness and the second way is economically. So as far as timeliness goes, how long can producers expect to to have to have these diligent programs to get real heavy weed areas under control? You know, I would say that it's that's going to be what an agronomist would say. It's a it's a great, you know, cop out answer. It always depends, uh, you know, based off of species composition, the original density and, and the management practices of that field. It's going to vary on a case by case basis. But if we want to talk spe in specifics, you know, th if we think about the seed bank dynamics of a field uh, being a living entity, obviously you're going to have to control for multiple years. So, and, and based off of your weed composition, you know, I think in, it, it was an undergrad, the weed scientist that I, I took one of my classes with told me like velvet leaf can remain viable in the soil for up to like 30 or 40 years. That's um, pretty so, incredible. <laughs> yes, but, but obviously that's on one end of the spectrum. Some of these smaller seeded uh, plants, like for example, your, your water hemp species, the seed reserves that they have uh, in terms of viability over time decreases rapidly. Uh, so based off of your species composition, you're probably going to have a better look at how long you're going to need to control a specific field. But the, the main takeaway answer from this, from this question that you asked me, and it was good, is this is a multi-year experience. Uh, if you have a new piece of ground that has had poor weed control, you're going to have to put in due diligence and time and money to control the, the last producer's mistakes. And eventually, you know, with time, you will be able to probably back off on that. But it's essential that you keep up with it in these in these first few years. And it, it may be more expensive than some of your other acres. But, you know, you're looking at a long term investment, probably if, if you purchase the farm and if you're renting the farm still, if it's a multi year agreement, you're looking at trying to maintain a, you know, income from those acres. N not just one year, but two, three, or however many years your agreement is for. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> it, it did. And you mentioned money and expenses there, which leads me to the second part of that question. And it, a lot of producers are in a tight area right now. I mean, yep. uh, your, your working capital, your line of credit is real tight. Uh, margins are a little bit better with the increase in market price, but who knows what happens here as we get into the end of summer and early fall to see how this crop actually turns out. So, I mean, it, and, and I know it's hard to quantify, yeah. but yeah. taking the time and the money to do this now it pays economic dividends down the road. Am I right? Yes. And that, that's something that I do want to stress that I, I seen, you know, growing up on a farm, I saw this and I know a lot of producers do the same thing you know, picking a herbicide program without looking sometimes at the weed populations in your field. The best thing that you can do with your retailer or your agronomist is visit visit your fields, scout, see what's there, and see if the, the herbicide program you're planning to put on, you know, do you really need all the products that you planned on using, or are you not uh, addressing a specific weed problem that isn't in the portfolio of the control that some of these other products provide? So, you know, it, it makes sense match a herbicide program up to what you have in the field. And, um, you know, with, with some of these situations, you can get by with some of those older 
um, you know, non-patented herbicides. That can that can be a, a source of cost savings. But for some of these premix herbicide prom, programs or uh, products that are, are very popular, they do come at a price premium. Um, but you know, they, they come with these different surfactants and and crop safeners. And sometimes that's a little difficult to create on your own uh, by mixing some of these old non-patented versions. Um, you know, that said. I would definitely look at exploring any cost savings, cost saving options that you have at your disposal. But you know, don't extend yourself past where you're comfortable making choices. I guess. Great point. Uh, staying inside of that comfort zone for your economics, but at the same time, making sure that you're controlling the issue. Um, let's turn quick to uh, cover crops and how they play into this picture. So, as far as weed controls, talk to me a little bit about the importance of uh, having ground cover there in the first place and also uh, competition with these weed species a little bit. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, so, you know, depending on who you talk to, cover crops are the next best thing or one of the dumbest things known to mankind. I kind of <laughs> fall in the middle. I think that there are times and places that cover crops are absolutely fantastic to implement into our cropping rotations. But if it doesn't fit a certain scenario or your economics you know, it's not something that you should explore at that current time. But, you know, don't feel like you can't come back to that option as you move forward with your with your operation. Um, it, it has to fit into your system. And, and one of the places I think that it's really going to fit in well this year is a lot of these prevent plant acres. Um, you know, you, you mentioned how cover crops interact with weed species and also ground cover. Um, I worked for a professor for a summer looking at a lot of those type of uh, a lot of these type of experiments look, using cereal rye at different density rates and different termination times in corn to control weeds uh, and what we found is you know if you can nail that, that termination time and, and you don't cause a competition for moisture or nutrients in your crop the residue uh, the stubble of that uh, cereal rye was an absolute fantastic tool to use in our weed management programs with a lot of these programs uh, not using either a pre or a post herbicide program or different timings or rates we found that you know the the, the residue from the cereal rye even after it was terminated was a fantastic tool for use in weed control and you know that's after it's been terminated and died and it's just laying down on your soil surface um, but we're talking about a active living crop cover crops specifically in these prevent plant fields uh, you know it's an opportunity that growers have not only to you know hopefully pr prevent any unnecessary soil erosion and, and protect that soil surface uh, but also as you said to compete with these weed species and you know also throw a little bit of diversity in their cropping rotations you know let's think about our common corn soybean crop rotation when was the last time some of these fields you think saw like a brassica species, your mustards, mm -hmm. probably right. a long time ago. Yeah, so it's an opportunity to inject a one year or, or a couple months of diversity into your system that it may not get to have for quite some time. But what it really comes down to is is the economics. You know, is it going to be economical for me to apply these cover crops to these prevent plant acres, and will I get the control I want with uh, these, uh, these species, species 
by the, by, by itself, or will I have to also include a tillage operation um, or a, a herbicide application? And I would probably say your best bet would be to start clean, plant your cover crops, and then based off of that, you you'd be moving forward with you know, do I have any uh, post emerge herbicide programs that I could put in these cover crop areas, or is my pre and my cover crop going to provide me enough control? Um, you know, there's a lot to discuss on specifically cover crops just in general. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of good, uh, you know, advice or even even perspective on that. I won't even call it advice, just some perspective on all the different options that producers have, because back to our point earlier, it's not just a, a one punch knockout. It's a one, two, three, four. Let's give them an uppercut after that and kind of mm -hmm. managing it. Managing it right is how I'll say that. Exactly. Um, one thing that you had mentioned offline too, and I'd like you to speak to this real quick is looking at making sure that you're, uh, planting the appropriate species as a cover crop. Can you just reiterate what you mentioned earlier? Yeah, most definitely. And I'll add a little bit to more than what we just discussed earlier. So, you know, when you're picking a cover crop, either blend or species to put onto your field, you need to make sure that you're either working with your ag retailer or, or your extension service to make sure you're adequately, uh, choosing a species or blend to meet your needs. You know, if you're wanting to add organic matter into your soil, that you're going to pick different species than what you would for if you want to, you know, cause, improve your soil infiltration rate with like uh, tillage radishes. Um, if you're, and then also whether or not you're addressing what you're going to plant the next year. You know, if you're going into a corn uh, you know, the next year you plan to plant corn where these prevent plant acres are this year, you need to be looking at, um, you know, do I have any grasses in the mix? So that way I can feed my mycorrhizae fungi in the soil. So that way we don't have issues when I plant corn the next year with a low mycorrhizae count. Um, but, but so those are all things you need to think about, but probably the utmost, most important one that I would think about when it comes to picking cover crop varieties is making sure that I stay within the rules of my prevent plant program. Um, you don't want to accidentally plant the wrong crop and find out that you've put your payment for the prevent plant program in risk or jeopardy of being, you know, canceled because you planted the wrong thing. You know, you mentioned earlier that you were talking to some producers that uh, were, were discussing potentially just planting soybeans as a, just to cover the ground because they had the seed but that is a harvestable, you know, insurable crop, and that would not fit into the prevent plant rules, uh, from my understanding. So yep. you know, make sure that you're following the rules associated with these prevent plant programs. And the key there, if you have any questions, contact your FSA office, talk to your agent, and make sure that you're making the right the right decisions there. Exactly. Uh, so Adam, I guess as we as we wrap up here, any last thoughts for uh, the people, the listeners out there? on what they, you know, anything to leave them with as far as weed control, what they need to be thinking about? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I guess we're, I'm gonna finish talking about these cover crops and then we can maybe go into a no cover crop where you got your, your field in, but just a little late. Um, you know, if you are planting or planning on planting a cover crop and you're looking at herbicide programs, there's two different schools of thought that you can use. Uh, the first is picking your, um, your cover crop species based off of the herbicides you need to spray for your weed pressures. And the other is picking your herbicides based off of your cover crop program. 
You know, those are two different schools of thought that are, are, are wildly different. Uh, and right. could, could have you plant different species or spray different herbicides. But I would say with this year having, you know, this is a large issue for a lot of producers in a lot of states. I wouldn't feel comfortable only limiting myself to one or the other. I would look at the options you have on both ends. What seed can I get to my field when I need to plant? And what herbicides can I get to uh, address the weed control issues I have in my field? And try to play the best of both worlds from those two uh, schools of thoughts, I guess. Um, and it's important also to note that this is something I was discussing with another one of our extension educators, um, is that you know with some of these herbicides, you they may not be labeled for a fallow application. So if you decide to not plant cover crops and you're not plant, choosing to plant anything in your field and you're just going to do a prevent plant and that's it, you, you need to make sure that the herbicides you want to spray are labeled for like a fallow application. Uh, otherwise, you're looking at, I don't know if it's the farmer themselves or if the county has to do it, but there's a 24 C, section 24C uh, for one of the uh, herbicide acts which, which allows local use for an emergency of some of these products. You know, make sure you're not going off label, basically. Great point. Um, you mentioned extension there. Uh, it, anybody listening, are they able to either reach out to you? And if so, how would they do that? Or what are some of the resources that you recommend if they have questions here? Yeah, most definitely. You know, if someone wanted to reach out to me, I will do my best diligence to pass them on to the next person who would be the best appropriate to suit their need. Um, my contact information, I don't know if you want me to share it right now or if you'll- Go ahead, yep, that's fine. Yeah, so, uh, my, my email address probably be the best way to do it, um, which would be Adam, A-D-A-M, then dot Striegel, S-T-R-I-E-G-E-L, and then that's at huskers.unl.edu. And I will try to get uh, any inquiries to the right person as, as fast as I can. Um, so that's one avenue. And then the next avenue is, you know, you said when you were introducing uh, the, the podcast series is that you have listeners in a lot of different states. Uh, I may not be able to address appropriately a, a, you know, a producer's questions. So if uh, if they're not in Nebraska or, or relatively close by, if you are, you know, not so close to where I am, I would not hesitate to contact your local extension agents uh, or maybe even your um, your ag retailers with questions because, you know, everyone wants to make sure that we succeed in this really rough spring. Um, and I would I would hope that we can find the information that we need, whether it be from me or extension or maybe even just uh, industry as well. <laughs> And some people may have gotten to the point in their operations that they felt comfortable with their programs for years and years and years. But I would argue that this is a unique year with a lot of unique situations. So reach out to those people uh, if you have questions. Hey, thanks a lot for joining us here, Adam. I really appreciate your time. No, thanks for having me. This has been a great experience and hopefully your viewers found my rambling useful. Well, they'll uh, they'll certainly be able to tell us if they did. Thanks, everyone out there for joining us on today's episode of the Ag View Pitch, and we'll catch you next time.